Okay. And by, and by the way, you can understand that this topic actually is kind of an important topic, this topic of rebirth, where it came from, how it got started, and what is the value of it. Okay. But in fact, that's something that I would like to talk with you today so that to help you to understand why it's such a widespread teaching uh, within Buddhism that in fact the nobles are not so against it. There are several good, valuable reasons why people would um, hold such beliefs. Um, but in fact, if you look in the Wikipedia article on Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, there actually is a line uh, quoting Bhikkhu Bodhi who is saying that it, that uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's teaching is a very dangerous thing, that it will destroy Buddhism if you take rebirth out of it. Well, Bhikkhu Bodhi is part of, partly true. He's partly correct. You see, when children are born, they're born in ignorance. Mm -hmm. Or uh, let us say they don't have uh, the skills of society. So um, some people will go so far as to say that, uh, that growing up is nothing but the socialization of a savage. Mm. Have you ever heard of that? That all children start off as barbarians? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, well, look at them and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> Um, basically, it's not that the child is wild, is that the child doesn't know what the rules are. Mm -hmm. And so they have to be taught the rules. And that the way that the rules are taught, then, is by the assumption that the child has no wisdom. Okay. And so in this regard, Bhikkhu Bodhi is correct that if we do not teach our children how to behave, the entire society here in Thailand, the entire Buddhist society will deteriorate into bedlam. That that's why the, the precepts are given, just like that's why the Ten Commandments were given. And then, in fact, the stronger the authority for these rules, then the easier they are for the non-authoritarians to enforce them. <laughs> okay? So daddy is not just the boss, but he's got the police to back him up mm -hmm. and maybe a priest, etc. Maybe I'm the boss here because God Almighty said I'm the boss here. Yes. <laughs> Divine right of kings, you see. Sure, sure. So um, this is the beginning of it. And that I can tell you about the Thai society in that regard, because this is actually quite an interesting thing. You see, right now, after 30 years since Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has died, um, the number of adherents or followers or people in Thailand, Thai people who are interested in Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, has swollen into the millions. Mm. Uh, not because of reverence for him, but because they, uh, the general population knows that what he is teaching openly is correct. Okay. That generally, because of what we were talking about here, that the noble Dhamma has always been kept tight, kept secret, kept um, away from the regular crowd because um, foolish people can understand it wrongly and then use it for manipulation. An example of that is, is that if you do not have the ordinary right view of that this is a set of rules, this is right action and this is wrong action, and if you do right action, you'll get a reward, and if you do wrong action, you'll get punished. Have you ever heard of that before? That's the law of yeah. karma in restatement. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that wrong view would then be saying, oh, no, I can get away with it. I can go ahead and do what I and you both, we all consider as bad behavior, wrong behavior, but I'll do it and get away with it. Yep. 
okay? This is the drive-by shooter. This is the politician. This is the wealthy man who thinks it's his money will get him out of any problem. This is a, I think it's called amoralism, right? Right. It is. And we are all amoral. We start (laughs) off that way. And there are two forms of morality. That which is enforced and that which is seen. Mm, okay. Okay, the children cannot see morality. They, it has to be enforced upon them. And sometimes with physical punishment. They say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, which means spare the rod and spoil the child. You've probably heard about that old style. No, we in fact can, with care, teach children wisdom so that they truly for themselves can see what is right and what is wrong without holding a bludgeon over their head. But back to Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, basically what can be seen by people who were scholars of of him, including um, uh, Robert, who is one of the translators. He speaks, reads, and writes Thai fluently. I'm impressed. Not jealous, but impressed. Um, And so um, he's been doing quite a lot of research and has pointed out that, and some things that we that I have known and suspected, but he's actually seen the evidence of that um, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa had actually changed over time. That he had the right noble view, but as he continued to grow with this right noble view, he began to see problems with some of the later teachings. So that in the beginning, like everyone else, he was quite in love with the Basudimaga. He quoted it often. But over time, he saw it more and more as a dangerous document. Okay. And he began to change over time. I think that Thailand in general has done that also with him. And yet when Westerners read the stuff, they will say, well, wait a minute, here he's against the Vasudhimaga, and over here he was absolutely for it. The place where, in fact, the, the Vasudhi Magga begins to fall apart through, through the inspection of wisdom is looking at Paticca Samapada as taking three lifetimes. Mm. You prob- probably heard that. That, in fact, there are three time periods in it. And we can think of those three things as three lifetimes. The, uh, the, the first part of it is what we would consider our own past, the Sankaras and the ignorance and all of that stuff that's built up from the past over time right up until this present moment. And then we can see what the mind is doing in that first instance of the here now. And then we can see that if that mind's uh, processing in the here now is ignorant, then the immediate future will be the rebirth of a self in a woeful state. Mm. All right. But in the Vasudhimaga, it talks about these as, no, this is actually real. All of those sankaras, all of your memory, and all of your ignorance was all based way into the past. And now you have this present life, and what you do in this present life will determine what's happening in the future. Well, one of the problems with that is, is that it robs us of the ability first to do anything about that future other than try to make merit to make that future life better. That's what we're looking for. However, uh, that gives one the idea that, oh, I'm a good Buddhist and that I understand Dukkha and the Four Noble Truths. I'm just not suffering right now all of that much, but I do understand the samsara of life after life after life of the same old stuff over and over again. I will eventually get tired of it, and then I'll practice. But until then, I want to make some merit so that in those next lives, I won't have to suffer much. Mm -hmm. 
well, if I can't see suffering in this life and I want to make my next life better so that I don't even have to suffer then as much as I suffer now, when am I ever going to see dukkha enough to where I actually want to practice and get out of it? Mm-hmm. So in that regard, belief in rebirth has really two qualities to it. One is that it gives us the delusion that we don't have to do anything about it now. Okay. That's one of the major problems. But the other problem is, is that in this lifetime, it does not give us any way to come out of dukkha in this lifetime. Okay. Why? Because of rebirth. You're either going to get enlightened right now, or you're going to be suffering in samsara, life after life. That's the story, right? Yeah, I mean... Okay. Well, this is basically what happens with your ordinary mindset. Is And most Buddhist people believe it like that. That, in fact, the belief in rebirth that keeps uh, this a Buddhist society prevents most of the people from actually getting the best benefit out of it. That's interesting. I've heard it many, I've heard it, I've heard it a different way. Um, but I, I understand what you've said. Um, right. So it's a matter of do you see dukkha or not enough in this lifetime to get out of it right now, never mind about the future. Or are you saying, oh, well, my dukkha is not really all of that big. I can put it off and put up with it for at least the next million years or two. The way, the way I've seen it, it's, it's almost like um, the way rebirth was understood in my head is if I don't take priority in this life to correct suffering, then I'm going to be suffering much more than I would necessarily need to if I then if I just took the action right now to correct that so in that sense whether it's true or, or not true this was like the perspective like it wasn't it wasn't a demotivating factor it was like oh I should I should practice now and today because these are going to affect and um on an innumerable amount of experiences down the line even more than just this finite life that's how, I, that's how I interpreted it. Okay, but in a way, you're still postponing your joy for some future. You're still working at it to get a benefit later. Well, that's what, that's what we're always doing at some, at some level until we're fully awake. No. Well, okay, yes, that's true. Wake up! <laughs> so... <laughs> I understand what, the way the way I see it is um, conscious touching my face. Um, <laughs> I almost feel as if I'm in a place where I am very committed to doing the practice right here and right now, and I almost see the view of rebirth as and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost at where I'm at slightly beside the point. For me, where I'm at, where I'm very committed to seeing this through in this in this life, in this as as um, like I'm I'm committed, I'm motivated to do this, and and mm-hmm. seeing directly what these byproducts are, and whether the view is is this or that, I'm not I'm I'm not too interested, but I'm interested in conducting the experiment in my life to see directly. The cause, because um, it seems as if um, a lot of this rebirth, whether it's believed in or not, it, it has a lot to do with how it motivates the practice, how it how it encourages or how it informs someone's way in which they go about doing their own practice. Um, mm-hmm. And where I'm at is, regardless of what that is, whether it's this just this life or whether it's countless life, it doesn't really matter. I just want to like wake up to um, what is this awareness, this state that the Buddha has been talking about. And when that happens, uh, it doesn't matter to me. It's just, I know that's what 
uh-huh. my 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 All trajectory right. is. Because um, honestly, it's a little bit it's a little bit um, it creates a little bit of a confliction inside of me to have to question or think about whether this is a reality or whether it's not a reality, and I come to this sort of place where. I don't really care if I'm going to be completely honest. Where that's, I that's an excellent place to come to. I congratulate you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and the reason that I say that is because you can also understand that many of these beliefs are based upon the fear of death. Mm, they true. want to be reborn because it's difficult for people to conceive of coming to the state of not being, being dead. Yes. The world got along without you before it met you. It'll get along without you after you're gone. Mm. And people don't like that. The the thing that, that led me to that sort of feeling of not caring is because I realized whether or not I have a belief about it, it doesn't change the reality of what's already here. So it's like, that's an important point, exactly. Here we are, whether you believe in that or not. Here we are. Um, so let me finish a point about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And okay. that was is that one of the things that he was doing, gosh, I could just go on and on and on and talk <laughs> about uh, this particular topic, uh, that he became because of the friends that he made. He had friends in very high places, and he got those friends in very high places because they understood that he understood the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so basically what I'm saying is he connected with nobles. Nobles tend to connect with each other because they know that they're in the minority, that most people do believe in, in rebirth, and all of the magic that comes along with that, including the magic of a self and the magic of who's reborn and me reborn and all of that other stuff. So mm. these friends in high places positioned Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa to have a major influence. And one of the places that he had influence was in uh, the legal or judiciary in Thailand. Now, even in the United States and other places, when, when we talk about um, uh, not the police force and, and not the army, but we're talking about the judiciary, we're talking about judges, we're talking about university professors who teach law, we're talking about law students and that kind of thing, all right? And so in that regard, he gave a set of series of 12 talks to judges, Except that it wasn't like having a group of judges, maybe nine or Supreme Court or something like that. But rather, this was in one of the largest um, auditoriums in Thailand that actually did belong to the government uh, as part of the judiciary. And that these rooms, this auditorium was packed. It was literally packed with literally every lawyer in the country and every judge and and many of the university students. And so uh, this is the group that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had um, uh, influence with, the aristocracy, the the graduate students of universities, the the ones who were uh, really caring about Thailand. And so this was the kind of the base that he grew. Years ago, when I was a monk, uh, every weekend, there would be busloads. They had a huge parking lot for buses, where the students from mostly Thomasad and some other university would come down every weekend, every one of them dressed in white. <laughs> and they would come down to Watsu and Mok to spend the weekend. That was how the kind of um, uh, dedication um, that that we had back then, but that dedication hasn't really stopped. Those groups still uh, exist on the university campuses. So Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is very much of an intellectual, um, uh, uh, he draws a a huge intellectual audience who is really interested in the truth. Even though his style of speaking 
is very, very low class. Not <laughs> humble, but just literally low class. He uses slang language and, and um, uh, lower class language to good effect and often for humor's sake. <laughs> uh, just like we use four-letter words for, for humor's sake. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, you could say the word fuck you in the sense that we also say get out of here or wow, that's interesting or something like that. So the word fuck you does not always mean that it's got the power of hatred behind it. No, it's, it's true. It's context. Right. It has to do with context. So this is the kind of language that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would use in context, which could be quite off-putting to your ordinary person. But to the intellectuals who understood his language and joking. Um, so he was an intellectual like that, and that still seems to be the case. Mm -hmm. That uh, the average Joe Blow on the street who is uneducated, um, he doesn't know too much about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, but he has still become almost the icon in South Thailand. Okay. Uh, you go into Suratani, and they still have a big banner up. Of him, uh, that uh, the whole town has to pass. So and many, many other things like that. But there's one more point that I'll quickly make about that, and that is that many of the students who were with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa in the 1970s and 80s, who are now old men, are now the abbots of many of the watch throughout South Thailand. When I, when I was here uh, for a visit, I was living in the United States and came back for a visit in 19, excuse me, 2003, I believe. And Achan Po took me all over the place. Mm -hmm. Took me to Corn Street Tamarat, took me to Trang, took me to uh, um, uh, Surat Thani, to Champon, to Renong, all over South Thailand. And in every one of these places, the abbot of the temple was an old student who remembered me from the 1980s. I just, you know, <laughs> everybody was really a great old home week. That's but awesome. it also pointed out uh, the power of Vicky Budadas's teaching. So it really is getting into uh, the culture who is deeply, steeply invested in rebirth and reincarnation. And it does appear that the transition can be made, that you do not have to lie to kids to tell them the boogeyman is going to get you if you don't do your homework. Mm -hmm. It's not necessary. The Bhikkhu Bodhi was wrong. You can teach the Noble Dhamma to children, but we just, the, the Buddhist cultures for centuries have done it otherwise. They've taught it the way that it's easy to teach, and that is to tell them, uh, that the big common machine in the sky is going to do my dirty work for me. That you better do what I tell you to do, or the common machine is going to bust your ass either now or soon. Someday it'll get you. Okay, mm. so that's the, the, the rationale from the teaching, but it also fits squarely and directly into the child's mind because children... Everything for a child is a survival issue. In fact, for most adults, almost everything winds up being a survival issue. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that uh, the younger a child is, the more important things like that are at that level. Um, in fact, when, when children are abandoned, when they're very, very young, um, then they will often, as an adult, have what's called an abandonment issue. And sometimes that issue can be uh, really interesting. One of the examples is, is that the new bride will have a fight with her husband, her new husband, every time it's time for him to go to work. Mm. Oh, before you go, let's have an hour-long argument. Is basically her day's work. Why? Is because she feels abandoned when her new hubby goes to work and she's left all alone. And she can't stand that. She can't tolerate being alone. Okay, so this is a very early issue. It's called an oral issue. And it, uh, people who have that were generally abandoned when they were infants. 
so that in other words, my very survival now is is on the line because my caretakers have abandoned me. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing that would happen to uh, like a child. Well, the story of Batman is a little late. Batman did not have an abandonment issue. He had um, uh, revenge on the mind. Mm. But uh, generally, when we lose a, a parent, when we're very, very young, that will have a profound impact. So you can think of it then is, is that we are affected as we as children, and things become a survival issue. And so that's why magic is such a powerful force to teach children to behave themselves. Yes. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but this is the, the way that it, it has always been taught. Now, one of the things that we have found through statistics that, that points to that uh, may not be needed is that you look at, at uh, countywide, or not countywide, but uh, by the county uh, statistics on things like arrest records and and uh, people going to jail, domestic violence and other things like that correlated against church attendance. Mm-hmm. And what they have found is, is that those places where people don't attend church, they don't think much of it and they don't go. And you could think of that basically the society is kind of either non-Christian or even go so far as to call them atheists, at least in a style, they tend to have lower problems with the police. They're better behaved society. They don't get drunk. They don't beat their wives and all of the stuff that many Christians do. And possibly part of the issue with that is Christians get forgiveness. Go and send some more. Mm-hmm to where um, those who do not have a religion actually recognize that, wait a minute, I am responsible for my behavior. I don't have to suck up to some god to, to, uh, uh, to be my bully for me. Okay. So this is one of the things that we can see that, in fact, um, the teaching of rebirth not so important. Okay. But it's still widespread. Okay. And that it is a dangerous teaching because it can prevent people from actually understanding and how to practice the real Dhamma because they say, well, I can put it off. In other words, they don't really understand Dukkha. Mm-hmm. Another way you can see that, in, and we're talking about the human psyche, we're not talking about specifically Buddha Dhamma because we can. See the, the same thing in other religions also. Yep. That the magical teaching may not be as valuable as the teachers who teach magic think it is. Mm-hmm. But it does have a downside. It is dangerous. And one of the dangers is that it, if we believe strongly in rebirth, then how can we, in fact, gain freedom in this very life? Mm-hmm. Okay, because my past, the old past, affects this life so much that all I can do is get some brownie points to have a better life next time. That's mm-hmm. the mentality. Glad to see that you're coming out of that, that you're recognizing, number one, it's not a survival issue. Mm-hmm. Belief in rebirth has nothing to do with whether you're going to be able to survive this life or not. Mm-hmm. The next point that we can talk about in a sense is, is that in this belief of rebirth, we don't even know where the term comes from. We do know that these two translators that translate things into rebirth generally um, are, are mistaken. An example of that would be jati. The word jati uh, can be used as birth but it can also be used as um, just merely the starting of something, mm-hmm. just like we use the birth of the blues. Mm-hmm. Okay, it just means that yeah, things got started then, but it doesn't necessarily mean to translate it into a magical form of rebirth. Mm-hmm. 
It's just things get started. And that's why uh, Paticca Samapada, if you think of it, uh, the stage of jati, is actually in the next lifetime. No, that, that happens in this lifetime. And when we can, uh, not just in this lifetime, but it's the natural outcome of clinging. Mm-hmm. That if you are in the state of clinging, you will naturally be reborn in one of those uh, woeful states, which woeful state depends upon how you're clinging. Mm-hmm. But if you're clinging to something, you want something that you don't have, then that winds up you're in a, a, a preta or the hungry ghost immediately, right then and there. That's when the rebirth happens. Mm-hmm. Once okay. we understand it from that perspective, that means now we've got something that we can actually practice, something that gives us immediate benefit and relief in this very lifetime. Mm-hmm. That's the important quality of um, this. The actual teachings of the Buddha is: let's get dukkha out right now. It's mm-hmm. not like dukkha and less dukkha, and then when I'm born into the future life, I'll have less dukkha then. No, the teaching of the Buddha is dukkha, dukkha, naroda. See the dukkha right now and step around it. Mm-hmm. That's what the real teachings of the Buddha is, is that you can have immediate relief. Mm -hmm. Every time you remember. Yep. (laughs) You can have immediate relief every time you remember if you've got your uh, set of skills going. Right effort. Mm -hmm. Right sati, right view, gives right attitude. Mm Mm-hmm. And we use Anapanasati to practice that. Okay. And so uh, that practice of Anapanasati then gives us immediate relief, immediate benefit. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the hindrances, there's actually a state that we can see that is relief immediately from these hindrances. Mm. One example is, is that we've been out on a journey. We're out in the desert of the mind. And then we find the oasis or a campground or a bungalow or home. We've arrived home with all of our belongings intact. And we can just literally relax. Wow, I'm glad I'm not out on the road anymore. Mm-hmm. You have that feeling on a regular basis. Glad to be home. Right? Mm-hmm. In fact, there's the old story that uh, uh, the young boy was asking Grandpa, they're in their buggy. And he says, Grandpa, the horse when we go out always runs really, really slow. <laughs> but when we get close to home, going home, the, the horse is running fast. Why is that? <laughs> and the old man says, because the horse knows how good it's going to be when he gets home. <laughs> okay. So think about the wandering mind as the horse is out, you know, wondering and wondering and wondering but now the mind can say oh I can be home instead mm-hmm. okay and so we come home immediately coming out of the hindrances oh I don't have to think about that anymore uh-huh I see you hindrance and though out you go and so I can come home another example of the hindrances um, or not example but analogies besides uh being out is the one of being sick mm-hmm. when we're sick the mind is not functioning that uh, we don't feel good uh, coughing and wheezing or whatnot like that uh, or in pain doesn't it feel good when we get over that illness mm-hmm. it's like being in the hospital and then getting out of hospital getting getting well we feel good mm-hmm. we may only be up to normal, but we really like that we're back to normal as opposed to being sick. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. This is how we want to to think of being free from the hindrances. Before, when I was in hindrances, I was sick. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. And now I'm not sick and I'm not tired anymore. Mm -hmm. This this attitude of, of appreciation, this is one of the wholesome attitudes that would be cultivated and like 
built through correct effort, right? So sometimes when I get when I'm free from these sensations, I I almost feel a sense like oh I shouldn't be too uh, too excited that they're gone because they're gonna just come back. But would you would you actually say like no be excited or be uh, uh, happy or appreciative that these are no longer here? So this is right. what you're saying. Yes. Okay. This is the right attitude. The can do. I can do this. I can come out of those hindrances. Mm-hmm. I can come out of my illness and be well. Mm-hmm. Another example is being in debt. I don't know if you're physically in debt or actually owe money to someone, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes, if I you have... don't owe anybody anything, yeah. then boy, aren't you glad you don't owe anybody anything. I know anything. that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're in debt, you don't like it, okay? Well, the mind is exactly the same way. When we've got work to do, that means that we owe someone or something something. Yep. But when we we wake up in sati and say, wait a minute, I don't have to think about that. I'm not in debt to anybody. I don't owe anybody anything. I got nothing to do and no place to go. I can just, oh, isn't this a nice moment? <laughs> Out of debt. And so this is another example of what it's like to be free from hindrances. And it's relieving. Oh, what a relief it is. Mm -hmm. Probably heard the old uh, commercial from years ago. It's an Alka-Seltzer commercial. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. It might be in my memory bank somewhere, but... Okay, so that's that's how we begin to see it as all oh, what a relief it is to be free from debt. Mm. Oh, what a relief it is to not be out on the road anymore to get to come home. What a relief it is to not be sick anymore. Mm. What a relief it is to get out of jail. Now, That's another analogy, is that you're in prison. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa makes a big point about the prison of life, that we're actually a prisoner of our lives in these hindrances. The, uh, the question I, uh, that naturally arises is when there is an external burden that is actually present, like actual debt and real, real turmoil, how does that, how does, how do we approach dealing with that while still feeling the sense of I'm free or is that not possible? Well, the feeling of freedom, if it is properly developed and as a skill, actually does chase out those old feelings of being in prison, being under the thumb of a, pred- of a, uh, of a creditor, uh, being out in the dangerous world that we can feel like we've come home. Mm-hmm. But that's a skill that is to be developed. Mm-hmm. But we basically have to talk ourselves into it. Mm-hmm. And mean, so thinking about it from this perspective, but think about, wow, it feels good to be free from debt. Let mm-hmm. me right now not feel like I owe anybody anything. I do not owe anybody that email. Mm-hmm. I do not have to work. I do not have to think about it. I can just relax and be free for this moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of if you genuinely do owe something to somebody, do you know, is, is it just a knowing like, oh, I, I now I know this is something that I'm going to do, but I'm not going to create suffering because of it. Mm-hmm. That's the, uh, the attitude of... And the way to do that is, for instance, that you've got a banknote coming. Mm-hmm. So two things need to be done is one that you need to know that you can cover that banknote that's mm-hmm. coming due, that you can pay the debt. And number two, after you know that, why give it any more thought? Mm-hmm. And yet we don't. We keep thinking about it. Oh, I got to pay that debt. Oh, I got to pay that debt. Oh, I got to pay that debt. When in fact, no, you don't have to think about it at all. Mm-hmm. But then you can recognize, wait a minute, maybe I even don't have the money to make that payment. But sitting here right now, I'm not doing anything to go get the money to make that payment. 
So why should I be frustrated and, and upset about owing that debt? I'm not going to go do anything about it. So why should I even think about it? I don't owe it right now. Out it goes. I'll think about it tomorrow. Okay. That's the way to begin to understand because you, we do know that you, you will think about it tomorrow. <laughs> so why yes. think about it today? Mm -hmm. At this moment, be okay. I'll take care of that later. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. One last one, and that is uh, the interesting one, and that is being a servant to someone. Like servant to the king, you got to get up before the king does. You got to get his clothes ready. Uh, you go around saying yes, sir, and smiling at the king all day long. And the last thing that we do at night is we tuck the king in, and now we're off. Mm -hmm. Okay, all day long, you got someone else to take care of. We got other things to do, and now we're out of we're free from the king's service. Mm -hmm. We don't have that job anymore. Well, I've got my time to myself now. Okay. So we can actually think of being in debt is almost like being in service to the king. And it's the same thing as being out on the, uh, the desert, wandering around, not at home. It's a feeling of dissatisfaction. Being sick is unsatisfactory. Being in debt is unsatisfactory. Being in prison is unsatisfactory. Being on the road is unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. And being in service to someone is unsatisfactory. And in this moment, when I throw the five hindrances out, that means that I've come home, I'm not on the road. Mm -hmm. That I am not in jail. That I am free. That I am not uh, in service. That I can take the moment off. Or maybe the whole day. <laughs> that I am, in fact, uh, not sick. That I feel okay right now. So these are the, the five hindrances and the five analogies. And by giving you that and recognizing, no, when I'm free from these hindrances, I'm, I'm not on the road anymore. My mind was on the road. It was out wandering around, looking for something, and wanting to do something so that I could feel better. And I don't need to be out wandering on the road looking for something to do so I'll feel better. I can just simply feel better right now <laughs> by giving up that search and being satisfied with this present moment. And so the five hindrances are really, really, once we begin to understand them, we can see the depth of dukkha. And this is the important point. This is why the Four Noble Truths is the, the teaching of the Buddha. In fact, he said uh, in one of the suttas, both formally and now, I teach only one thing. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Okay, he doesn't say Dukkha, Dukkha, Dukkha for a while and then you're reborn into no Dukkha. No, it's Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Wake up to that dukkha and come out of it now. That's the real teachings of the Buddha. To actually experience that third noble truth of being free from suffering. To recognize what it feels like. To feel good. Wow, I don't have any of that stuff on the mind right now. Isn't that great? So we talk ourselves into feeling good by recognizing that the mind is free from hindrances. And that helps us to develop those twin skills of piti sukha. Piti has that um, that release, that aha, that that big point, mm -hmm. followed by the sukha, which is the relaxation. Many different analogies. You could say that the gun going off, the blast of the bullet, and all of that is the piti, and then the sukha is the smoke mm -hmm. that's left. There are many ways of looking at it, okay? And so we begin to develop this feeling of being a winner. I can do this. That's associated with the pity. I can do it. Mm -hmm. I've got it. I feel really good that I can do it. And then we have the, the secondary one, the more relaxed one, is the satisfaction. Wow, 
the job is done. I don't have anything to do. What needed to be done has been done. <sighs> and so this is the way that we practice like that. In this present moment, we can get relief right now. We don't have to wait to become lightweight in some future existence. We can take a load off and be light right now. Mm -hmm. So the word enlightenment, by the way, is not a word from Buddhism. That's a word that's come into it from someplace else. Possibly the French Revolution and a scientific uh, revolution of the takeover from religion into science. Hmm. That transformation hasn't completed yet, but it did get started three, four hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And so we can still say that we're in the age of enlightenment. It's just that Christianity is oh, taking its slow time to die. <laughs> and so the word enlightenment really has two qualities that directly match with the teachings of the Buddha. The first quality of enlightenment, and I'm looking at the word light, is that we turn the lights on. We have daylight. We can wake up and see what's going on. So sati and the investigation is associated with uh, the first kind of enlightenment, to wake up. Mm -hmm. So if someone has freed themselves of the first three fetters, which have to do with knowledge, then he is considered already enlightened. He is noble. Even though he hasn't finished all of the defilements, he really can see them. Mm -hmm. Because he's got that light. He can wake up to it. Mm -hmm. And that that waking up or that light has to do with the quality of seeing through our personality so that we recognize we can change. You see, if you believe in rebirth or if you believe in a soul like the Christians do, then they talk about original sin. They talk about that you can't save yourself and that this is where we get the idea that we can't change. And it's built into the language like the leopard can't change his spots or the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. So once you get the, the uh, uh, let us say, the attitude that you can change, no matter what, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can come out of it and be happy and be here now, that's a major transformation. That's a noble way of looking at it. Because mm-hmm. uh, the ignoble or ordinary way, uh, the, the, the Pali word for that is putajana. Yeah, I've heard that. The word putajana means the ordinary mind that um, is, is stuck in the belief of rebirth and reincarnation, I can't get out of it now. All I can do is make the job easier later. Mm-hmm. That's the Puta Jhana. But the first noble thought we have is, is that, hey, I can wake up. Hey, I can come out of my suffering. No matter how obstructed the mind is, no matter how worried I get, I can stop worrying. Mm-hmm. That's the first stage of the path. That's the first knowledge. That knowledge is no matter how obstructed the mind is, I can clean it out. Mm-hmm. I can be free from those hindrances. How can we come to that step? Is by constantly practicing throwing those hindrances out over and over and over again, and we begin to build confidence. We begin to build shraddha. I know I can do it because I just did it. Mm-hmm. I'll do it next time. I can do it now. I can do it later. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is that first knowledge, and this has to do then with the waking up or the real knowledge. Mm -hmm. So later the enlightenment is in the sense of not heavy, that we've lightened our load, we've taken a load off. Mm -hmm. We can, in fact, okay, so you can think that, uh, that these two stages of enlightenment can be seen as Eventually, after enough practice, one comes to know that I can, in fact, clean out the mind, and we become enthusiastic about it and reach the state of sotapan. And then later, 
after a lot of practice, we can rid ourselves of anger, rid ourselves of um, uh, our greedy materialism, and then start working on other things that are more instinctual, like our relationship to others, our conceit, our restlessness, all of those higher things are also one at a time dropped away through knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that's the two kinds of enlightenment. However, we can also not think about it in the sense of the long-term plan. We can think about it right now in the sense that the first step of enlightenment is sati, to wake up. Mm -hmm. And then the second stage of enlightenment is that freedom from those hindrances right bloody now. I'm free. Mm -hmm. I'm in the state of third noble truth. That's what we need to practice is getting ourselves into a state of complete satisfaction. Oh, this is so nice. Yeah. Oh, this is really, really nice. This is really satisfying. And so this is the way that we want to practice is not practice in the sense of meditation will eventually get me to soda pine and then way off into the future it will get me the final release. No. Right now. Right now. I can wake up, I can throw down that burden, and I can be free and happy right this very minute. And that mm -hmm. means good in the in the in the beginning. See mm -hmm. a lot of people think you have to practice for a long time mm -hmm. and then get your reward because that's how our society is built up. Exactly, yeah. But in this case, no, it's good in the beginning because you get immediate relief from the hindrances. All you have to do is throw them out and to recognize that you've thrown them out and oh, what a relief it is. And this is why it's good in the beginning. And then it gets good in the middle because when it's good in the middle, that means that our effort is no longer effortful. Now we just naturally uh, have, when sati comes, we spring, literally spring into the action of that first, that state of being satisfied. Is it, would you describe it as like, um, you just train the mind to naturally respond to defilements, and then once you've trained it enough, it just naturally begins to do it automatically? Not automatically, but let us say what is automatic is a better word to call it rather than automatic is unremitting. 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 Unremitting mindfulness. Okay. What we mean by unremitting is it, just, it comes back. It doesn't just dwine, dwindle away and stop. It yeah. keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. There may be times when there are hindrances there, but that's not going to last long because Satya is going to come right back. Mm -hmm. That's how we want to train it. This is why the sati is the most important skill to be developed, because this is the one is the one you need the most. The other skills, um, as we develop, become more habit forming, in the sense of one's right effort. Uh, now becomes that we spring right into action. It actually becomes energetic. In the beginning, it's a lot of effort, but when our effort is developed well, then it's easy to do. The same thing is also true with the investigation, that uh, in the beginning, we have to tell ourselves, you've got to look at what's going on. You've got to notice this stuff. You've got to watch what's going on. You've got to note. That's the whole Nahashi method. Later, when it's unremitting, we just naturally are looking. We're watching. We're not going to let anything get by. When unremitting sati is there, unremitting uh, investigation. And with that comes along, that springing into action or springing into it with the energy, and then the uh, right attitude is the attitude of the other things in this Sambhojana, which is joy, pity, oh, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And we become relaxed. Now, okay. I know that in the suttas it uses big, powerful, heavy words like tranquility, but for <laughs> me, tranquilizers are what you shoot out of a gun to make a lion go to sleep, and that's not yeah, a, I don't sure. want tranquilized. What I want is just easy going, easy peasy, relax, relax. That's what the word actually means. Mm, in fact, okay. we get our word passive from it. Passive. 
passive, to pacify, just, okay, nothing to do, no place to go, is quite passive. But we can also better understand it when we use the word relax. Okay. And so, uh, with these five hindrances removed, we can, in fact, gather up all of these factors. And when we have these factors together, the mind is unified, and these are also the factors that are associated with first jhana. And so to develop the skill to get into it and then to develop the skill to maintain it so that it becomes unremitting, unremitting, okay. that you can easily get yourself into this state. And now all you have to do is remember. And when you remember to do it, it's very easy to get yourself into that state. Why? Because you've got those other skills of right effort, right investigation, right attitude. Mm-hmm. Sati is... Um, is becoming real. I'm realizing it's more and more important um, than even concentration, or not more important, but actually, actually, let's look at that word concentration, and we'll finish the talk off with with that. All right. Okay. We've we've gone over it once. Okay. All right. But you used it again. Yeah. <laughs> and here I go. With bang, 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 bang. We're oh. talking about samadhi here. We're not Let's, talking about concentration. I'll, I'll, I'll use the different word that we've, that we've <laughs> the the, uh, the gathering, the unification process. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, but um, I know that word. But the gathering together unification process is a, is a set of skills. And when those skills are developed, then the only thing that kicks it off is sati, and you can come back into that unified mind very quickly, very easily. Okay. If we um, if we were to end on something, one of the things that um, I I'm <laughs> going to be working on. So this October, I've made a I made a point to um, just focus more on satipatthana, um, just this mindful thing uh, that because I it's more apparent to me that this is something important and I'd want your, um, we can discuss it more in October, but at least for the beginning, I'm trying to form, formulate a way of, of practice, um, from, from just the morning. You want to incorporate the word Vipassana. Okay. That's the word you used, right? Okay. I didn't use that, uh, word. Did you hear me use, did you hear me use the word Vipassana? Well, let us say that vipassana actually means the result of the investigation. Okay. If the word vipassana is bringing on a state of inspiration, a, a state of can do, then it's functioning correctly. Okay. If, in fact, our insight or our vipassana is insight into the nature of suffering while we're in suffering, mm-hmm. which is the way that most of the beginning students practice, then this is not useful because that's just dukkha, investigation of dukkha, insight into dukkha, more dukkha, but boy, do I know what it is, but I'm still in dukkha. Mm-hmm. That's not how we're going to practice. Mm-hmm. The practice is all the insight we need is, is to see that it is dukkha. Mm-hmm. Well, or that it's a hindrance. Or that it's an obstruction. Mm-hmm. Or that it is preventing me from being in a really good state. That's all we need to see. All the insight that you need is the insight to say, whoa, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay? That's inspiration. The inspiration or the oomph that it takes to get out of it, that's what is our vipassana. Mm-hmm. Not the investigation of dukkha while in dukkha. The time to investigate dukkha is while we're not in it. Mm-hmm. Just as the right time for the scientist to investigate what's in the petri dish is while he himself is not in that petri dish. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay. So, this is why we want to see those hindrances and hind- as hindrances and then come out of it immediately. 
-hmm. That's the practice. Mm -hmm. Not the investigation and the, um, uh, the insight, deep insights mm -hmm. we don't need. We need only a very quick insight to know, I don't need to be here, let me get out of it. <clears throat> yeah, the, uh, this perception that this is not, I don't want this here, and this, the perception of, I don't want this here because it's dukkha, and then the process of removing it as soon as, as possible, um, so is how I'm understanding what you're saying. It's, right. Yeah. The action that it takes, one's right effort, is to throw it out. Mm-hmm. And think about it in the sense of the action that leads to the end of action or comma that leads to the end of comma is, is that hindrance and hindrance and hindrance and hindrance and hindrance and then we throw it out and now it's gone. All it took was that pushing out. Another example of that would be um, that if the cops want to stop traffic, all they have to do is to put out a roadblock. And all of that traffic, look at how many people, how many big trucks, all of that traffic will stop if you put up a roadblock. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to do is we have to put up that roadblock to remember that we're going to put a stop to that. We don't have to be there. And that the white roadblock to use is, aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see you. Yeah. Aha, I see you. That's, uh, that's gladdening the mind. That's... Uh, the whole change right there. Sometimes after putting up these roadblocks, it feels like the mind begins to protest that what used to be able to come through in my experiences. Sometimes it's, uh, it gets, it gets upset that there's this block now of ignoring and sometimes it will, it will recede and then it will come back even stronger. It feels um, mm -hmm. But you threw it out one time, you can throw it out again. Yes. <laughs> yes, but you're pointing out something that's very interesting. Yes, the habit patterns of the mind is such that we do want to complete a thought. Even when I'm talking to students and they'll interrupt me and we go off on a tangent, still I want to come back and complete that thought. Of course. <laughs> yeah. That happened in this talk when I wanted to uh, continue with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. We stopped at Paticca Samapada and then we picked up later on that he went to talk to the judiciary and talk yes. about the high class people. Okay, so that's an example that yes, the mind does want to finish a thought. Mm -hmm. More dukkha. Yes, we know. And <laughs> so we can, in fact, say, yeah, we can be watching for that. Yeah. Um, Oh, wow. Let's put it this way. Let me give you this story. Okay. The old man had been going to the same temple in his locality for years and years. He had risen uh, to, to prominence. He was on the board of directors. He went to the temple on a regular basis. All of his family knew and everything. And then a new monk comes to live at that watch. And he has an argument with that watch or that, mm -hmm. that monk. So this old man going home is a, is a Dhamma dude, and he knows what's going on in his own mind. And so he makes a deal with himself. I am not for a while going to think about the what at all, because I know if I think about the what, I'll think about that monk. If I think about that monk, I'll think about that argument, and here I am suffering again. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the whole topic of that what is persona non grata, except that in this case, it's thought non grata. <laughs> it's out. You're not going to allow that particular kind of thought to come in. So an example would, would be when you're in debt, don't think about the debt. You either get the money and pay the debt off or you don't. But even whether you do it or not is not important is the fact that you're worrying about it. Mm hmm. Uh, and so this is the, uh, to continue along with that idea then is, is that we begin to understand that some thoughts are not worth having. Therefore, anything associated with that thought, I'm not going to allow in. Mm -hmm. And so if you've had an argument with someone, you don't let that person in your mind at all. And so Johnny comes to my mental door out, Johnny. 
you're out, you're you're out. Think thoughts about you, not Johnny himself. When I see Johnny, he's good. Why? Because I have forgotten now about the argument I had with him. I keep forgetting and keep forgetting and intentionally forgetting that argument. I'm not going to think about that argument. So when I do see Johnny, I'm good. Now, Johnny may want to start up the argument again because he's had it spinning on his mind all of this time, you see. Okay. So we're going to start deciding I'm not going to have whole topics of conversation Mm -hmm. are going to be off limits. Not going to let that thought come in. Mm -hmm. An example again would be visas. I've got to do a visa. Got to do one in January, but I'm not going to give it a thought until January. (laughs) Now that's different from years ago. Years ago, I'd start worrying in October about that visa that has to be done in January. Mm-hmm. But now, no, I can throw that thought out. Visas, nope. Yeah, thoughts it, of visas are out. It it's almost a shock to the mind that this is a possible avenue uh, that can be taken of just ignoring these things. It's it just seems this is something that's never been communicated or taught to to my to me to anybody. It just. Mm-hmm. We just let the mind even, do whatever. Even the word ignoring is not the right kind of word because we're not ignoring that thought. In fact, if we ignore it, it'll just stand there and just burn and burn. Okay. No, we're actively grabbing that thought by the seat of the pants and throwing him out. Okay. That's a good correction. Thank you. <laughs> he is not allowed. Great. Um, and so in that way, we keep wholesome thoughts in the mind by making sure that that particular unwholesome thought doesn't have any time. Mm-hmm. As soon as I see that thought of Johnny and our argument coming in, or I don't even have to have the thought of, of the argument with Johnny, just Johnny himself, any thoughts of Johnny, and out they go. I'm not going to think about it. Mm-hmm. When, um, okay, that makes sense. That's helpful. Um, Okay, yeah. Um, I was, I was gonna bring up when when a pain arises in the body. You can't throw the pain out necessarily, but you can. You can throw your attitude about it. And throw out. the attitude about it. Yeah, I was I was thinking about it. And I answered the question um, in my own head before I asked it. So, mm-hmm. um, one thing. Uh, thank you. Uh, one thing that I wanted just to bring up casually was um, my one of my peers uh, had mentioned he reached out to you and sometime in the future it might be fruitful for us to have a three-way conversation his name is Jake okay um, I don't I just thought that would be something I bring up because no problem let's bring that up when it's time okay you're right you're right um, well Okay, well, we'll finish now, and we'll talk later. Okay. I appreciate you. Thank you. And uh, I'll speak to you. May you enjoy. <laughs> I'll speak to you soon. All righty. See you. See you.